If you have your Bibles tonight, I would like the message to be some thoughts on Christian education. And out of respect to God's word, would you please stand with me? And what I'd like us to do is a responsive reading out of Psalm 78. And I'll be using the King James Bible. If you don't have a King James Bible, there's one in the pew right in front of you. And what I would like us to do is turn to Psalm 78. And I'll read all of the odd number verses, 1, 3, 5, and 7. And if you would read in unison, 2, 4, and 6, this will be our scripture for this evening. Psalm 78 and verse 1, the sacred historian has recorded these words for us. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in imparable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us will not hide them from their children, showing the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. The generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born who should arise and declare them to their children. And then our text will be found in verse 7, which says that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we come to you. And more than anything, we want to empty ourselves of ourself. Lord, we pray that you would have preeminence tonight, that we would see the principles and the precepts of your word, and Lord, we would take them to heart, that it would be our desire that your word would find good soil in our heart, that your word would take root, and that in turn it would bring forth fruit, and that your fruit would remain. Lord, we want this time to be dedicated to you. We want to glorify you. We want to honor you in everything that we say and do, and Lord, may you meet with us tonight and we would give you all the praise and all the honor for it. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've been asked, how did you get started in Christian education? And my story begins when I was 14 years old. I grew up in the town of South St. Paul, Minnesota. I was in a ton of trouble. As a matter of fact, all of my friends were getting caught for the things that we were doing. I had not gotten caught yet, but I knew that day was coming. And so a person that I played ball with said to me, would you like to go up to the church camp with us, to our church camp? And the only thing I could think of when he asked that question was, if I go up to that little camp in northern Wisconsin, the cops can't find me there. (laughs) So I got on the bus, went up to First Calvary Baptist camp. And I had never been around Bible-believing Christians for any length of time, and I found out very quickly that they spoke and acted differently. We got up there on Monday afternoon, all the activities that you have at camp, the water activities, the games, the preaching, the Bible teaching. Monday night, the campfire service was the message on the reality of hell. There we are gathered around this campfire, and the camp counselor talks about the reality of hell. Hell is a, de- is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. God never intended for you to go there, but if you reject the free gift of salvation, this is your eternal destiny. I remember going to bed that night and thinking, boy, I don't want to go to hell. I don't know what to do about it, but I don't want to go to hell. I got up the next morning, sat at the table with my cabin mates, and 
found out Christians talk differently. Somebody at the table said, I was having my devotions this morning, and I just looked at him like, you are having your devotions today. Somebody else said, I was praying today, and it was as if the Lord said, and look at that, you were praying, and God spoke to you. Okay. All day Tuesday, activities that you go through Tuesday night, <clears throat> the messages on the reality of hell around the campfire. Again, I don't want to go to hell. Got up the next morning, and on Wednesday, instead of having a campfire service, we went to an independent fundamental Baptist church just like this. Got on the bus, drove all the way from camp into First Baptist Church of Milltown, Wisconsin, and all the way in and all the way back to camp, I was asking my camp counselor, I am Roman Catholic. I know the Lord's Prayer. I know the Apostles' Creed. I know the Stations of the Cross. I know all of that. How do I know that I can? And that night, July 10th, 1974, I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save me, to receive me as one of his own, to take away my sin, to forgive me, and to let me be one of his, one of his children. That fall, I went back to South St. Paul High School, and as best as I could, I tried to be a witness and a testimony to my friends, to be, a, to be an influence for them. And some days I would get bold, and I would carry my Bible with my, with my textbooks to class, and my friends would say things like, are you a Bible salesman, Tim? Are you a Jesus freak? And after a year, year of just trying starts and stops, peaks and valleys of being a good testimony, I went to my dad, who was Roman Catholic, and I said, Dad, I would like to go to a Christian school this fall. And he said, that is great. And then he listed all the Catholic schools in the St. Paul, Minneapolis area he'd send me to. He said, do you want to go to Creighton? I want to go to St. Anne's or whatever it was. He said, that'll be fine. I said, Dad, you don't understand. I would like to go to Fourth Baptist Christian Day School in Minneapolis. And he looked at me and he said, well, if that's what you want, I can't pay for that. You'll be on your own. And all I heard him say was, yes, you can go to a Christian school. <laughs> I went out that summer, got a job, enrolled myself in Fourth. Every single month when the bill came, it came with my name on it. I wanted to be in a Christian school. I wanted to be in an environment where it was okay to bring your Bible, to share prayer requests, to try as best as you can as a new Christian to live for the Lord. After a year's time, Sue and I went to Rosemount Baptist Schools, and we graduated from there. And then we went down to Bob Jones University. And I must say, you're looking at somebody who's pretty gifted. It took me seven years to get a four-year degree from Bob Jones. I finally graduated magna cum baia. <laughs> it was so bad, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences was in Adolf Hitler's army. He was conscripted when he was 14. And we had him for an orientation class, you know, 1,000 freshmen in one, in one room. He wouldn't have known me there. But then I had him for a German class, and I had him for a philosophy class. And after seven years of seeing me on that campus, taking the scenic route through Bob Jones. It comes time for graduation, and they said, OK, here's the deal. When, when your row is called, walk up on the platform, see your dean. He'll give you a case to put your diploma in. If, you're, if your bill is paid, the records office will release your diploma. Make your way off the stage and find your way back to your chair. So I walked up, saw my dean. He looked at me, and he said, well, I never thought I would see the day. And I thought, <laughs> all right. Way to encourage the troops on the way out of here. <laughs> and then we taught in South Carolina, and then the Lord moved us up to South Bend, Indiana, and we taught there for three years. And then the Lord moved us up here to Michigan. 
And I have been blessed to be a part of the Michigan Association of Christian Schools, to be their legislative representative in Lansing and Washington, DC, to work with our Christian schools, to try as best as we can to make them to be everything that, that the Lord would want them to be, something that parents would be thankful, grandparents would be thankful to be able to have their children in a Christian school. One day, years ago, after our daughters had graduated from Bob Jones, I thought, I wonder how much money we've spent on Christian education since they were in kindergarten through graduation. And as best as I could, I sat down and figured out, and I turned to Sue and I said, I think, as best as I can tell, we have spent $317,000 on Christian school bills from the time they were young until the last one graduated. And I said, you know, we could have bought a really nice cabin up north. And she said, it wasn't an expense. It's an investment. We are investing in lives for eternity. And that's the mission, the goal of Christian education. So we look at Psalm 78. And the big idea in Psalm 78 is found in verse 7, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That word first is protos, first in rank, first in priority, first among the first things that you should do is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. To know what's important and to know what is first place in the things that is important. And for us today, every single home is a school. Every single parent is a teacher. And every single day, great lessons of life are being taught to this generation and the next. One person can truly make a difference in the lives of other people. <clears throat> the poet put it this way. An old man going a lone highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm, vast and deep and wide, through which was flowing a sullen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream held no fears for him, but stopped when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you are wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day. You never again will pass this way. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you this bridge at eventide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, on the path I have come today, he said, there followed after me a youth whose feet must pass this way. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building this bridge for him. Every single one of us has a legacy, whether we know it or not, whether we will embrace it or not. And that legacy is to train and to help the next generation. And look at our psalm, Psalm 78 and verse 1. The psalmist says, give ear, O my people, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. What is the psalmist saying there? In the vernacular, what is he saying to his kids? Listen to me. Listen to what I have to say. Have you ever had to try to get your kid's attention? Listen to me. I have one grandson that when I need his attention, I just need to hold him like this and say, listen to Papa. This is, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And he's saying, listen to me. Why does he have to do it? Because today in the world that we live in, the world is full of influencers. In our day, those influencers may be generational. And it may take time for that influence to filter down to us. Today, the influencers are being held in the hands of those who are being influenced by those people with voices 
and thoughts, sometimes destructive to young people. There are influencers out there that we have to say, don't listen to them. I had a mother ask me one time, Brother Schmig, at what age should I allow my child to have their own cell phone? And I said, with all due respect, you give your child a cell phone when you want them to have unlimited, unfiltered access to pornography and when you want to give them a portal to hell. That's when they should have a cell phone, unfiltered and unchecked. The world is full of influencers, and too often we become thick with thin things. Let me ask you a question. Who won the Super Bowl eight years ago? Who won the World Series five years ago? Who won NASCAR last year? We become thick with these thin things. But let me ask you another question. When you were in school, did you have a favorite teacher? Do you remember them? Can you hear their voice? Can you see the things that they taught? It's <clears throat> amazing, but when I ask that question, people will say, I remember this person. Not so much what they taught, but the person that they were, the gentleness, the direction, the instruction that they gave. I was in a conference with a man that was a cardiologist. And I said, tell me your story. And he said, when I was in high school, <clears throat> I was that kid that was always in trouble. He says, as a matter of fact, we used to siphon gasoline out of the cars. He said, I could tell the difference between regular and high octane just by how it tasted in my mouth when I spit it out. And he said, I was in trouble, headed the wrong direction, and a guidance counselor at school said, you know what? Our school has never graduated a cardiologist. You could be that person. And one line, one sentence, turned his life around. We can be that positive influence to young people today. And we become thick with thin things. And the psalmist says, in verse 1, he says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the <clears throat> words of my mouth. And then verse 2 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. You and I need to see the time that we've been given here on earth in reality, that all of us have an expiration date, and there should be a sense of urgency and intent with the things that we do. He says, I will teach you the great lessons of life. Those things should penetrate the mind. They should leave a lasting impression. They should have influence that goes just beyond this time. When you go to Washington, D.C., and you stand in Arlington National Cemetery, you can look up on the hill, and you can see what's called the Custis Lee House, where Robert E. Lee lived. <clears throat> and one day, when Robert E. Lee was living there, a light snow had fallen on the ground, and he needed to go from the main building to one of the outbuildings that was there. And as he was walking through the snow, he heard something behind him, and it was his young son following him, trying to keep up in his father's footprints. That night, Robert E. Lee wrote in his diary, he said, when I saw this, my son trying to walk in my footprints, I said to myself, it behooves me to walk very straight when this fellow is already following in my tracks. Folks, we're the influencers. We need to teach with intent. We need to teach with the heart of compassion. We need to teach with a sense of urgency and to reach and to teach this generation that stands before us. But let's take a look at the instructor. 
We've looked at the influencers. We've looked at the intent. Let's take a look at the instructor. Verse 3 says, We have heard and have known and our fathers have told us. The delegation of authority to be the primary teacher in the home rests right squarely on the shoulders of dad. Now that's good, and that can have some implications to it. Because what do we know about dads? Dads have a tendency <clears throat> of teaching monodirectionally, always with a personal application. Let's just say for the sake of discussion, it's April in Michigan. I mean, we could get four to six inches of snow tonight. Good snow. First year we lived in Michigan, we had snow on the 4th of July. So I know on any given day of the year, it could snow. Now, if it snowed tonight, four to six inches, what does every single kid hope and pray for? What does he want tomorrow? Snow day. Snow day. And if he doesn't have his A game, he'll go to his dad and he'll say, Dad, do you think they'll call a snow day tomorrow? And what does dad do? Dad goes right to the home movies. Reel number four, dad the early years. Son, let me tell you what it was like when I was your age. <laughs> now, when dad was his age, how far did dad live from the school? About five miles? About five miles? And I'm absolutely convinced that anybody who ever grew up right next to the school never becomes a dad because the story doesn't work that way. Then how deep was the snow from dad's house to the school? About what? Waist deep? And that's all relative because dad was only 36 inches tall at the time. And then the best part of the story, what was the terrain from dad's house to the school? Uphill, if he's a good dad? Both ways. All right? We built them tough back then. And we have a tendency of turning every single story to us. And it, it happens in every aspect of life. We had one of our ladies in church. She was a kindergarten teacher. She's out at recess. She's pushing the kids on the swing. She becomes distracted with something. The kid comes back faster than she was ready for it, and her wrist gets bent back. She goes to the doctor. The doctor said, your wrist is not broken. The tendons are a little bit sore, so we're going to put it in a plastic We'll wrap it in an ace bandage, and we'll put it in a sling, leave it immobile for a couple of weeks, and you'll be okay. So she would come to church with her arm in the sling, and ladies would look at her, and they would say, what happened to you? And she'd tell the story. I was pushing the kid in the swing. My wrist got bent back. It's not broken, but the doctor said if I keep it in the splint, immobile for a couple of weeks, it should be okay. She said, this is her story, every single lady looked at her and said, is John helping out at home? Is there anything I can do? Can I come over and make a meal? Can I clean, from you? clean for you? Can I do laundry? What can I do to help you out? Every single lady looked at her, and their heart was broken with compassion for her. They felt the pain that she felt. She said she would come to church, and men would look at her, and they'd say, what happened to you? And she said, well, I was pushing the kid on the swing, and my wrist got bent back. It's not broken, but the doctor said if I keep it immobile, it should be okay. She said every single guy said something like this. That's nothing. <laughs> you should have seen what happened to me. And then they would have some fantastic story. They were a senior in high school. 
They were on the football team. They had torn ligaments in their knee. It was the homecoming game, and they still came in and kicked the extra point. And now after they encouraged her, now they're going to help her. Here's what you need to do. Exercise it a bit. Put a little ice on it. Put some Bengay on it. You'll be okay. Why is that? Because every single lady goes through life compassionately, empathetically. Every single guy goes through life autobiographically. Yes, ladies, it is all about us. And you're going to hear every story about us because that's how we roll. And the psalmist says the primary teacher is supposed to be the dad, and yet when the Lord is with his disciples and he's looking at the city and his eyes are filled with compassion and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, he turns to his disciples and he says, pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Don't go throughout the world telling everybody your story. Tell the world his story. And the Father, the delegation of authority has been moved, has been passed from the Lord to the Father. And the Father is supposed to be the primary teacher in the home. The Father is the one who is supposed to be giving the life's instruction for this generation and the next. And so you have the instructor. And teaching is a transfer of personality. The Lord says, the servant will be like the master. We have a tendency of emulating, mimicking those who have taught us and instructed us. And so we look at the instructor. Next, let's take a look at the inheritance found in verse 4. The psalmist writes, We will not hide them from their children, showing the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and the wonderful works that he hath done. Our education for children is not Hide and seek. We paint the Christian flag and our Christian heritage in bold colors, telling them of the wonderful things the Lord has done for us, telling them the blessings that the Lord has given to us, telling us the wonderful history that we have, the things that God has done to prepare us for where we are today. We tell that boldly, and we tell it in such a way that we're not ashamed of our Lord or even of the consequences that could happen for us telling the story boldly. I was speaking at a church a while ago, and a man came up to me afterwards, and he said, I was standing at the table, and he says, Brother Schmig, let me tell you what happened this week. He said, I'm a manager with our company, and every single Monday we have Monday morning managers meeting. And the Monday morning managers meeting is we talk about what happened last week, good and bad, a plan for this week, and what next week would look like if all of our plans for this week come to fruition. Every single Monday, that's what we're supposed to do. He said, except last Monday. He said, we showed up and we were in the conference room and the person conducting the meeting said, let's go around the room and talk about something good that happened this weekend. He said, we had never done that before. He said, so we're all trying to think, what did I do this week? And I went golfing, worked in the garden, uh, went up north, went to a birthday party, and, and we're struggling to think, what did we do this weekend? And he said, so we're all going around the table, manufacturing something, remembering something that we did. And we came to one of the managers, his name was Jim, and he said, Jim, tell me something good that happened this weekend. And he said, I got engaged. He said, that's wonderful. Who did you get engaged to? And he said, John. And he said, let's all go around the table and congratulate Jim on getting engaged to John. And he said, so person after person after person dutifully did what they were asked. 
He said, he came to me, and he said, Brother Smig, I just went, I couldn't say anything. He said, I looked at my manager, my boss, and the disappointment on his face told me, I'm done with that company. He said, I will probably always have a job. I don't think they can fire me for that. He said, but I'm done. My management, my fast track for management, it's over. Because in a meeting, he had the boldness to not affirm, to not endorse something that God does not endorse, to not uh, go along to get along. But he stood up for his convictions and just made sure that he spoke in such a way that he could give the praises of the Lord and then show in his response the wonderful works that the Lord hath done for us. You know, a 17th century Massachusetts diarist said this. He said, history is a memorial of God's mercies for three purposes. History is a memorial of God's mercies for three purposes. Number one, so that our posterity may know them. We talk about God's history so that the next generation may know what God has done for us. Secondly, that we might remember them and that they might remember them. And then thirdly, he takes a verb and it takes a noun and turns it into a verb and he says that we might hymn h-y-m-n them that we might sing the wonderful things that the lord has done for us whether it's our nation or our testimony or the lord's goodness and so it's to give instruction in every aspect of the life and we say it with bold colors we will not hide them from their children showing the generation to come, the praises of the Lord and his strength and the wonderful works that he hath done. And then look at verse 5, the instruction. It says, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. He says, very boldly, we're going to talk about the wonderful things that the Lord has done. When I was a student at Bob Jones, we would have Georgie Vins, the pastor from the Soviet Union, would come and speak to the student body. And he would talk about the fact that the underground church in the Soviet Union, sometimes they would meet out in the woods. Sometimes there would be snow on the ground and they would meet out in the woods. He said sometimes they would meet in darkened basements and whisper the name of Jesus in these darkened basements for fear of what the Soviet government would do to them. And my mission in life, my motive in life, is to do everything that you and I can possibly do so that our grandchildren do not have to whisper the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may speak up boldly for what he has done as, as our Savior and someone who has most providentially blessed us in this country. And he gives us this instruction. It says he appointed a law in Israel. He established a testimony in Jacob, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. When you study the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible, very clearly you will see that the Lord absolutely hates idolatry. You know, we talk about the names of the Lord, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. One of the names of the Lord is Jehovah Quanah, Q-A-N-N-A. And that means Jehovah is a jealous God. He wants no other idols in front of him. Do we have idols in America today? What idols do we have today? Movie stars, celebrities, you know, those influencers that are out there. 
What else do we have? What other idols do we have? Money. Oh. We, cars, sports, all of these things. Since 2020, do you know what I think one of the greatest idols that we have today is? Safety. Follow the magical six feet of separation because you're unclean. Do we serve a God who is omniscient? Does he know everything? When he gave us his book, did he know that in 2020 we would have COVID-19? And yet, what does he tell us as the church? Greet one another with a holy kiss. And if we're Baptists, a holy handshake. But he tells us, break that six feet of separation because I, the Lord God, have created. And I've had COVID-19. I was in ICU with it. I get it. It's not to be trifled with. And God, in his all-powerful dispensation, says, I want you to follow me and to follow my world, my word. You know, oftentimes I'm asked, how do your graduates do in the real world? I was testifying before one of the House sub-education committees, subcommittees in Lansing, about a bill, and when I was through, I stopped at a restaurant, I was eating my sandwich, and this lady stopped by the table I was sitting at, and she said, I heard your testimony in the House Education Committee, and she said, I know that you represent those small Christian schools, but I have a question for you. How do your graduates do in the real world? And the first, it's not the first time I've heard it, but the first time I heard it, I got real defensive. I said, our graduates, they get accepted in all the colleges that they want to go to. Our, our, our graduates are successful. We had one graduate who was a Secret Service agent. We had another graduate who was in the Situation Room in the White House, which is four stories below the Oval Office. He had the access code to get the president or vice president into that room if there was ever a national emergency. We have max graduates that are uh, local policemen, state policemen. We have one max graduate. He was a state trooper up in the UP. He pulled a car over for speeding. He gets up to the window, and he sees it's the principal from the Christian school he graduated from. And he looked in the car, and he said, my, my, how the tables have turned. <laughs> so our graduates are successful in anything that they want to do. But that's not the best answer. The best answer is simply this. Since 1962, prayer has been outlawed in our government schools. Since 1963, Bible reading has been outlawed in our public schools. The Bible says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so for all of these years, almost 60 years now, our schools have been forbidden to have the very essence of life in their schools. So can I turn the question back and say, how do their peers do in the real world? Because in the real world, there is a God, and he is knowable, and he is there, and he is not silent. In the real world, there is heaven to be gained and hell to be shunned. In the real world, there is a God, and all of us will give an account to him. So I believe that our graduates do very well in the real world. Parents put their children in a Christian school to get the things they can't get in the government schools. Bible reading, prayer character development. And have you ever thought about the fact that all education is religious? It's just a matter of whose thou shalt and thou shalt nots the parents will bend their knees to. The Lord says in Psalm 78 in verse 5, it says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. God has given us his law. 
He is a jealous God, and he does not want any laws in competition with him. And yet today, if you see what's going on in our world, there is a set of secular Ten Commandments that are out there. Thou shalt not speak anything against the militant homosexual movement. Thou shalt affirm and embrace and, and in every single way affirm the radical LGBTQ community. As a parent, you shall not speak anything about the books or the things that are happening in the schools. And so it's just a matter of whose thou shalts and thou shalt nots. As a parent, you are willing to put your children under. And oftentimes, I've, I've heard people say, but when you put your children in a Christian school or when they're homeschooled, there is so much that they won't get. Amen. Amen. Guilty. We embrace it. Absolutely. Let me tell you what they won't get. Our kids don't do real well on the evolutionary charts because we believe Christian education begins with the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our children do not do well in secular humanism. Our children do not do well in every single person being told that they are a God and they are in charge of their own destiny. There is so much that they do not get in, in the Christian schools. But what they do get is they get access to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single day in a Christian school, the two eternal things in this world come in contact with each other, the word of God and the souls of men. And Christian school teachers say the most difficult thing one person can say to another person, and that's this, follow me as I follow Christ. I want your life to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I want your life to count for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in a Christian school, we cannot condone what God has condemned. We cannot be at peace with a culture at war with God. And we realize that for everything that is done in this world, we will one day give an account to a thrice holy God. And it is imperative for us as parents, as influencers, to instruct this generation to realize that they will give an account to that God. <clears throat> so, we looked at the instruction. We've looked at the influencers. We've looked at the inheritance. Now let's take a look at the generational influence that we can have in Christian education. It says, verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. If you start counting the generations there, depending on how you count the generations, there could be as many as three or five generations listed in these two verses. And so our influence extends beyond our time and beyond our life to this generation and the next. One of the means of education in America was the New England Primer. And the New England Primer had a catechism in it, and then it also had suggested prayers for children. And one of the prayers was this, Now I lay me down to take my sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. How many of you here remember praying a prayer, something like that, when you were a kid? Do you realize that your parent, your aunts, your uncles, whoever it was, your grandparents, Somewhere was in a school, somebody in the family history was in a school where that prayer from the New England primer was taught to them, and by word of mouth, by oral history, they have passed it on to you. That's generational teaching. 
That's teaching the next generation. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the problem with society today, it's not that they're bothered with the fact that we believe in God. Everybody will tell you, I believe in God, some God of some sort, the God of their own mind, the God of their own financial ability. The problem that they have with us is not that we believe in God, but we believe God. We believe that his word is true. We believe that his promises are ever sure. And we believe that wisdom is the principal thing. And when God gives his law, it is not 10 suggestions that might work. He gives 10 commandments. And no matter what the legislature in Lansing or Washington, D.C. thinks that they can do, there's certain things that are not up for debate. There's certain things that are not up for redefinition. There's certain things that are not to be trifled with. Our God is a jealous God, and he's given us this law and this commandments that we would teach this generation and the next generation. And the whole idea, the whole purpose of us teaching this generation and the next is found in verse 7. The big idea is this, that they might set their hope in God. What does the Bible say about the word hope? When you study the word hope and you look at its occurrences in the Bible, it's amazing because in the Gospels, there's very few references to the word hope. But then you open up the book of Acts and you read all the way Acts to Revelation and you get hope, you get hope, you get hope. And the whole idea is our hope is in the fact that we serve a risen Savior. That our hope is in Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Hope is an anchor of the soul as found in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. Peter tells us that we have a lively hope because of the resurrection. And he also tells us that the lost are without hope and without God in this world, in the book of Ephesians. We have hope, so what is the best definition of hope? Hope is the confident expectation based on trust in God. And our founding fathers gave us an ability to be able to educate and to share our faith in such a way that we should not be molested because of the things that we teach. They gave us the principle of religious liberty, of liberty of conscience. And that is you should be able to enjoy your faith no matter where you are. Today, the secular society has turned the principle of liberty of conscience and they now call it freedom of worship. And what they say is this, you are welcome to believe whatever you want within the four walls of your church, but don't take your faith outside of this church. If you're a Christian baker, you could be in trouble if you don't bake a cake for the people who want to uh, impress their beliefs on you. If you're a t-shirt maker, you need to make a t-shirt for an organization that you may not agree with. And so our purpose in going to Lansing and going to Washington, D.C., it's not just to protect the pastor that's in the pulpit, but the plumber, the printer that's in the pew, to protect religious liberty so that other children, so that their children might set their hope in God. And I think the best education is education in the very best of things. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Proverbs chapter 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct their paths. So what's the application? What do we learn from this psalm? Well, the thing that I think that we come away with is... All education has a religious bent to it. 
It's just a matter of whose thou shalt and thou shalt not. You will give credence to. Paul tells Timothy, he says, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise in the salvation. In the 1500s, the reformer Martin Luther made this statement. He said, I am afraid that schools will prove to be the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. Thessalonians tells us, stand fast and hold to the traditions, the body of precepts transmitted in an unbroken succession to subsequent generations, which we have been taught in a word, in word, and by our epistle. Paul wants us to take this truth that we've been entrusted with and to give it to the next generation. As we said in, in Sunday school this morning, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 says, He has showed the old man what is good, and what doth the Lord require of us? But to do justly, to take the things that we've been entrusted with, to hand them like a relay race onto the next generation, that they might learn the principles, so that in turn they would take the principles that we've handed to them and hand them on to the next generation. To do justly, to love mercy, to be compassionate on people, and then to walk humbly with our God. A good teacher wants their students to be godly. The Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, had a brand new young man come into his Sunday school class. The man had never visited the class before, and Edward Kimball said, our lesson is in the book of John, and he handed the young man a closed Bible, and he had never had a Bible before. The young man frantically looked for the book of John. The other students in the classroom assessed the situation, realized he didn't know where John was, got the attention of Edward Kimball, pointed to the young man, and Edward Kimball handed the young man his open Bible and proceeded to teach the lesson from the young man's Bible. The next Saturday, Edward Kimball sat at his kitchen table and he thought, as he was studying his lesson, he said it was as if the audible voice of the Holy Spirit said, you need to go visit that young man. He works at Holton Shoe Store. He had no reason to not respond to that prompting of the Holy Spirit, so he got up from his kitchen table, made his way into downtown Boston, and as he was walking by Holton Shoe Store, he thought, what if I walk into Holton Shoe Store and that young man's boss gets mad at me because I'm taking time away from him working at his, at his job. He said, what if I walk into the store and the young man is embarrassed to be seen with a Sunday school teacher? What if I walk into the store and the other people in the store make fun of this man because I'm trying to make a good boy out of him? And while he had all of these debates in his mind, he walked right past Holton's shoe store. When he realized what he did, he decided he would just have it over with, and he walked into Holton's shoe store. He saw the young man in the back, stocking and shelving shoes. He walked back to the young man, got behind the counter, put his hand on his shoulder, and made a plea for his soul. And Edward Kimball said it was a rather weak plea indeed. Years later, D.L. Moody recounted the story this way. <clears throat> He said, I was at work in Holton Shoe Store. My Sunday school teacher came behind the counter, put his hand on my shoulder, and made an appeal for my soul. And he said, I thought this is a very strange thing indeed. Here's a man that I had not met until lately, and he is weeping over my sin, and I never shed a tear for them. Deal Moody went on to say, but I know now what it is to have a passion for souls and to care for other men's salvation. One biographer of D.L. Moody said that D.L. Moody took the little island nation of England, the continent of North America, 
and lifted them up like crown jewels for the Lord Jesus Christ. One unsaved biographer of D.L. Moody said that D.L. Moody personally depleted the ranks of hell by three million souls. Mom, dad, Sunday school teacher, do you look at your kids? Do you see the next D.L. Moody? Do you see the next Fanny Crosby? Do you see the potential that they could have to do something for the Lord? Do you see what they could do if you and I decided that we wanted to be the influencers that we should be? That if we turn off the noise that's out there, get back in the book and direct our attention and our affections to the Lord, and then in turn, share those affections and attentions with this next generation. The poet put it this way, when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he shows me his plan for me, the plan of my life as it could have been had he had his way and I see. How I blocked him here and I checked him there and I would not yield my will. Will there be grief in my Savior's eyes? Grief though he loves me still? He would have me rich and I stand there poor, stripped of all but his grace. While memory runs like a hunted thing down paths I cannot retrace. Then my desolate heart will well nigh break with tears that I cannot shed. I'll cover my face in my empty hands. I'll bow my uncrowned head. Lord, of the years that are left to me, I yield them to thy hand. Take me, make me to the pattern thou hast planned. This pattern for us is found in Psalm 78, that ultimately this generation and the next would set their hope in God. Will you accept the challenge? Let's pray together tonight. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you for the blessing of being able to open up your word in a country that is free. Thank you for the blessing of religious liberty that we have. Lord, I pray that our heart's desire would be that we would train this generation and the next to love you, to serve you, to know the wonderful truths of God, that they would set their hope in God. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, there might be someone here who would say, Brother Tim, the Holy Spirit has spoke to me. I want to be that person who is an influencer. I want to use the influence that the Lord has given me to be a better encouragement to this generation and the next. Would you please pray for me just by an uplifted hand? And I'll pray for you. I won't call attention to you, but I'll pray for you. Just put your hand up and take it down. I see those hands. I see those hands. Just put your hand up and take it down. I see those hands. I see those hands. Father, thank you so much for loving us, for the blessing of being able able to open up your word tonight. I would pray for each one here that every single one of us would use the influence that you've given to us to be able to instruct this generation and the next in the wonderful truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.